0: And then we will stand and read, Second Kings chapter three. Father, as a, based on the nature of the topic of this morning's conversation, the devil would want nothing more than this service to take place. And so now we pray, Lord, for Your Holy Spirit to help this transition smoothly, and for Your presence to be known amongst us. And now we give You our time and our and our thoughts now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now Jeroboam, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now Mesha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and used to pay the king of Israel a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jerome went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. And he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered the way of the wilderness of edom so the king of israel went with the king of judah and the king of edom and they made a circuit of seven days journey and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them then the king of israel said alas for the lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of moab but jehoshaphat said is there not a prophet of the lord um, here that we may inquire of him and one of the king's servants of israel's servants said elisha the son of shaphat is here who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. The king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Elisha said, As a lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, Were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you or see you. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. He said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of trenches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see the wind, nor you you shall see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, both you and your cattle and your beasts. This is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. Then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city, and fell every good tree, and stop all the springs of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. It happened in the morning, about that time of the offering of the sacrifice, that behold, water came by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. Please receive it. Well, good morning. And you remember back in September that I began a new sermon series at our church titled, Sermons from the Summer. This is a series that was birthed out of different experiences I had during my vacation time. Uh, things that I saw, things that I heard, uh, questions that arose around the fire, different books I read and so on. And as a result, as you remember, will remember, we looked at uh, different topics, like what does the Bible say about tattoos? What does the Bible say about clothing, how we're to dress? And what does the Bible say about suicide? Well, today's sermon was one I intended to preach a few weeks ago before I knew I was going to be approved to go on sabbatical, and I'm finally getting it to it today. So even though it's summer's sermons from the summer, don't let the month of November going into December fool you. (laughs) So what we're going to speak about this morning is, what does the Bible say about the role that music has to play in being a catalyst in hearing and experiencing the presence of the Lord? Truthfully, it's a subject matter I never really thought about before until this summer. But I was given a book by John and Charlene after they left here from coming to us from Ireland. And in this book, and different books that they gave me, I was reading a section about how the Holy Spirit is active in believers' lives today. And there was a particular section on prophecy. Now, the author was speaking about how many prophets in the Bible not only had unique personalities and quirky traits, but also the ways in which they uniquely set the table to hear from God. The the unique ways in which they would set the table to hear from God as prophets. Remember what a prophet was, that that he was God's spokesperson for the community of Israel, and God would speak to the prophet, and the prophet would give the message to the people. Now, one of the ways we read about in 2 Kings 3.15 is music. Look at 315, Elisha says bring me a minstrel, which is a Hebrew word for musician. And it came about when the music played or the musician played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him and he said. So as Elisha had music playing, the Lord spoke to Elijah and gave the word. So today it's not a sermon about what type of music we should or shouldn't listen to as Christians. If you want to know what I think about that, go to all my sermons on tattoos and clothing, and Romans 14 is the the principle by which I would live by, and I think the Lord lives by too. But today is actually about how music can be a means of creating an atmosphere in which God's presence can come and create an environment in where he will speak to us directly. Now I want to give you the background to 2 Kings chapter 3 before we dive into the passage. So the story centers around Elisha. Elisha, not Elijah. Elisha, and he was a prophet within the nation of Israel in about 850 BC. Now he'd been a, the assistant to or protege of Elijah, arguably the most famous prophet in all the Bible. And you will remember him because he went up against the prophets of Baal with King Ahab and Jezebel. But within our context, Elijah's time has come to an end. The Lord has revealed to him that he's about to be taken into glory and depart from this known earth. Knowing his departure was imminent, he wanted his assistant or protege Elisha to know if he wanted anything from him before he left. So in chapter 2, verse 9, Elisha asked here in verse 9 that that he be blessed with a double portion of his spirit. Elisha asked Elijah to have a double portion of his spirit come upon him. Now, I'm not here to discuss to the degree what that actually means. I can make a good Bible study for you all. But at the basic level, at the basic level, Elisha saw how greatly the spirit of God worked through Elijah. And he wanted confirmation that God would work through him to the same degree and even more. And so God, in his grace and compassion, granted Elisha that request. And when we see through his ministry, you see evidence of this over and over again. So time has passed now, by the time of chapter 3. And Elisha, Elisha is in full swing in ministry. And so we pick up our story in chapter 3, centering around three main kings. If you look at the the three kings in prominence, in verse 1, we find out about this guy named Jerome, uh, who's the king of Israel. The king of Israel in the north, we have Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, in the south. We have this Misha fellow, king of Moab, directly to the east um, of Judah, and the king of Edom, who's going to join Israel and Judah in a three-king alliance to go up against Moab. So you can see the four nations surrounding like the The Dead Sea there. So the first king mentioned is found in verse one. His name is Jerome and we learn that he was the king over Israel at Samaria. Now what's interesting about him is that he's described as being the son of Ahab. The son of Ahab. Now you remember Ahab. He was married to Jezebel and Jezebel and Ahab formed a terrible duo, this rebellious duo that basically went up against Elijah. Elisha's master over and over in a battle of whose gods or whose God was actually the true God. And Jezebel even had a history of chasing after Elijah, wanting him dead. And so there was a huge amount of tension between Elijah and Elisha and Jezebel and Ahab. And so Jeroboam is now the king over Israel where his dad used to rule. Now we know he didn't fall far from the tree. Uh, in terms of his behavior, because in verse two, look how it describes him. it says he did not he did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made israel sin, he did not depart from them. So we have this idea here or this this reality that uh, Jerome is a wicked king but he's not quite as bad as his parents, but he's still pretty brutal. So it's kind of, uh, kind of like these comparative things we have to consider. But again, he's still known as a wicked king. He's not a righteous king at all. So the second king we find out about is uh, Jehoshaphat in verse one. It says there that he was, he was the king over Judah, and you can see where Judah is in the south on the map. But in, we learn in verse one that he was in his 18th year when Jerome came to power. So Jehoshaphat has had a long reign so far, and Jerome's come to power. Now we're not told much about him here in this text, but we learn in places like Chronicles that he began his reign devoted to God. For all intents and purposes, he was a godly king. Second Chronicles 17 defines him this way. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. So this man was, again, seen as a godly king. However, his reign ended with some, a little, some tragedy, and his weakness was one that you actually see here in this text. He often built alliances with the king of Israel. And even though the kings of Israel were wicked, it didn't stop him on many occasions to forming alliances. The third king we find in verse 4 is Mesha, the king of Moab. And you can see Moab directly to the east of the Red Sea, uh, directly across from Judah. But we learn a couple important details about him in verse four and five. It says, now Mesha, king of Moab was a sheep breeder and used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and, and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now, what we learn here is that while Ahab was alive, Jerome's dad, the king of Misha, or Moab, Misha, paid a, paid a pretty substantial fee or taxation. Since, in, since Israel had political power, he demanded the neighboring nation of Moab pay a tax. And so every time Ahab said, pay me 100,000 lambs and 100,000 bulls from rams, Misha had no obligation but to pay unless he wanted to go to war. Now, this is clearly a sore spot for Misha, So when Ahab died and his son, Jerome came to power, he saw a great opportunity. He thought this is the time now to get under from the yoke of the King of Israel and stop paying my taxes and seek the throne. And so it actually says in verse five, he rebelled against the King of Israel. Now this doesn't take a rocket science to figure out how Jerome would have responded (laughs) in retaliation we actually see in verse six, that he went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. So he got his, his local Israelis together to form an army, but then he proceeds to Jehoshaphat in the south in verse seven. Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses now so now he's got like two kings on his side he's or he's got well he's got his own people he's got uh, jehoshaphat and now he's going to go in verse 8 and 9 and also persuade the king of edom to form a three king alliance against moab so now from jerome's perspective the situation can't get any better he's got a three king alliance he's surely assured a victory against the Moabites. But then on their way, a big problem arises. They run into a huge problem in verse 9. It says there that the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Now, there's no water for the cattle because they went south they went south, Israel, Judah, and Edom all joined together and they came around the southern tip of the Dead Sea to go to Moab. Well, that's arid land. Anyone who's been to Israel knows that, that around the Dead Sea there's a desert-like place. And they went south. The question is, why didn't they go north? Why didn't they go around the northern tip of the Dead Sea where it's more fertile? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but most likely Moab was fortified from the north knowing that if people were going to enter his land, it was most likely going to be from that direction. And so they thought for the best chance of victory is to go south where he wouldn't be suspecting as much of an attack. Well, the problem again was that it was arid land, and so the people ran out of water. It doesn't matter how big your army is, if you're close to death, you're absolutely useless. So how did Jerome respond to this crisis? Well, being the good and godly king that he was, he blames God. Look at verse 10. He says, Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. (laughs) So this is incredible. The idea to go to battle against Moab was the king of Israel's. It's his idea. Now that he runs into tragedy and things are going poorly, he says it's the God's fault that we're going to be delivered to Moab. I think there's a huge lesson in that for us, even as believers, right? Oftentimes when life is going well, praise God, you're so good, you're a good, gracious king. And when things go badly, Lord, where are you? Where are you? Have you abandoned me? Do you not care about me? Right? And God, it's your fault that this is happening to me and so on. A good lesson for us not to be like the king of Israel. Well, thankfully for Jerome, there was a godly king in their midst, and that was Jehoshaphat. Now, he had a different solution to the problem than blaming the Lord. And so look what he says in verse 11 and 12. Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah, Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him, went down to Elisha. Jehoshaphat knew that if he found a prophet, he knew that that prophet would speak for the Lord. And he thought, you know what? Jerome's going to blame God for this. But to really get out of this jam, we need to know the truth of God's word. What does the Lord really say about this? Do we turn around and go home? Will he supply water? Do we go forward and go fight Moab? Like, what is the proper answer? So Jehoshaphat finds a prophet, uh, the prophet Elijah, because he knew, uh, quote unquote, that the word of the Lord was with him. Great description. May that be said of us: that the Lord, the word of the Lord, is with us. So here's where things get interesting. When the kings find Elisha. Elijah is not pleased at all in fact he's irritated he's irritated especially by the presence of Jerome the uh, king Ahab's son he's irritated by the presence of his son look at that in verse um, 12 verse 13. 13, he says, now Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. So again, Elisha says, what do I have to do with you? Why are you coming to me to inquire of my God? Why don't you go back to your family of origin, Ahab and Jezebel, your parents, and go ask the Lord, like the bales. Go ask the bales what we should do. And it was a rhetorical, like obviously a um, statement because bales don't exist. Like there, there's no such thing. Well, they exist, but there's no God behind the bales. And so really he's basically saying, stop wasting my time, get out of here. I don't, I don't even need you in my presence. I mean, Elisha knew the history as well. His, his master Elijah was in constant conflict with them and even sought his life, and there was years of animosity over the idolatry that they led Israel into. But further evidence that he was irritated and agitated comes from verse 14. Elisha said, as Lord of the the host lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. In other words, you're lucky Jehoshaphat's here, because if he wasn't here, I wouldn't even talk to you, nor have the time of day for you. Pretty powerful words from the prophet. Now, why do I bring all this history up and and, and spend so much time in the details? You need to understand that the situation is volatile. The situation is tense. This is a high-stress situation. There's no water. The armies will be agitated. Death's on their doorstep. There's a lot of bad blood in the air. Ahab and Jezebel, um, you know, against Elijah, his master. And now Jerome, the son coming to speak to him. is Jerome, a wicked king. He has no interest in God, but now because he's in trouble, he wants to hear from the prophet. It's the kind of environment which carried emotions that would not be conducive to hearing from God clearly. Let me say that again. It's a kind of environment irritation, frustration, like bad blood that is not conducive to hearing from the Lord. It's not the kind of environment. If I were to put you in any situation of high tension and frustration, it's hard to hear clearly. It's hard to think clearly in those situations. So look what Elijah does, Elisha does in verse 15. Now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played And the hand of the lord came upon him and the lord said thus says the lord make this valley full of trenches for thus says the lord you shall not see wind nor shall see rain yet the valley shall be filled with water so that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beasts this is but a slight thing in the hand of the sight of the lord he will give you the moabites into your hand and then you shall strike every fortified city and every choice city and fell every good tree, and stop all the springs of water, and mar every good piece of land of stones. He calls for a musician. He calls for a musician to hear from the Lord. Now, in the midst of chaos, this is important, Elisha believed that the way in which he could quiet his soul in order to hear from the Lord and experience his presence was through the playing of music. Not only did he believe this, it actually worked because we see that God revealed not only would he provide water, but they would be assured of victory over the Moabites. Really powerful, church. Now, as I began to study this further, I realized this was not the only place we see music accompany prophetic messages, I want to show you in first King or first Samuel chapter 10 and verse 5. Uh, the context here is God has appointed Saul king over Israel and Samuel has anointed him with oil but then he's given further instructions. The further instructions are this: after you will go to Gibeah of God where there is a Philistine outpost, as you Saul approach the town you will meet a procession of prophets, coming down from the high place with leers, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The music is a means of stirring to hear from God, and God gives them messages. But not only this, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. So the, the music even sets the table for, for uh, um, uh, Saul to join these guys in prophecy and to be changed by the spirit of God coming upon them. In 1 Chronicles 25 and verse one, we read this. Not, it's not only Saul, but David has this, uh, David through the, the pointing of um, uh, people to serve at the temple had the same outcome. David, together with the commanders of the army, set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun for the ministry of prophesying, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. So again, we see the presence of the Lord coming through music. Now, speaking of both Saul and David, I want to look at one last example before I go into application. I want you as a church to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Just go two books backwards from Kings towards Genesis. First Samuel 16. So let me give you the context of first Samuel 16. Saul started off as a King, committed to the Lord, but now he's disobeyed on a couple different fronts. One, he's taken the role of priest when he shouldn't have and didn't wait on the Lord. And the second thing is, he did, he didn't obey God fully by getting rid of all the Amalekites who are Israel's enemies. So he sinned twice against God, even though he's been given the Holy Spirit to minister and lead God's people. God is angry, and he tells Saul through the prophet Samuel that the kingdom will be torn from him and replaced by someone else who will ultimately become David. But not only is the kingdom taken, Look at verse 14. It says here that now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. I'm not going to get into the theology of how this works. That's another Bible study. But here's the important thing. Um, The spirit left him and an evil spirit came upon him and terrorized him. It, It put him in anguish on a constant basis. Now, what's important about this is how how Saul's servants felt it appropriate to deal with the spirit's torment. How did the servants of Saul think it's appropriate to deal with evil spirits and their torment? We pick it up in verse 16. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you shall be well. Or you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the youngest men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, a of Beth, of Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So David shows up, and look at the results in verse 23. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand and Saul would be refreshed and be well and the evil spirit would depart from him. Again, the power of music, not just to give words of prophecy and to hear from God speak to us, but in setting the table to ward off evil. So I'll leave you with two thoughts before we go into application. First, notice the quality of the music in verse 16 and 19, if you like to circle things. It says in 16, the servants thought it'd be important to find a man who was a skillful player on the harp. And in verse 18, again, a skillful musician. Now, why do I mention this? Well, I was tempted to bring my violin this morning and play Amazing Grace. The first time I played it, I was going to play it horribly out of tune, like drastically out of tune and squawky and ask you if you were inspired, would you be inspired for me to lead you in worship this morning and sing Amazing Grace? Or would I be a distraction to your focus on trying to praise the Lord? The answer is obvious, (laughs) okay? That's why music is one of the most contested things in the church. Everyone's got their preference of what's skillful and what's not and so on. And Katie, you are, so don't, don't, uh, don't think anything of what I'm trying to say here. That's why we invited you, because we knew that you were skillful and you would set the table and our heart to be devoted towards the Lord. But again, if I played the same song with Amazing Grace and played it in tune with, with beautiful, like, you know, vibrato and with feeling, your heart would be hopefully inclined to worship the Lord. So again, skillful musicians is what, what they recognize, and it worked, the evil left. There's, and um, this is not the only time skillful uh, musicians is necessary. Remember I showed you in, well, actually, 1 Chronicle 25, when David gathered these men to prophesy, I want you to notice the talent level of these men. Later on in verse 6 and 7, it says, all these men were under the supervision of their father for the music of the temple of the Lord with cymbals, lyres, and harps for the ministry of the house of God, all of them trained and skilled in music. All of them trained and skilled in music. This is God's will. This is God's desire for the temple. Highly skilled and highly trained. So it's a theme. that, And we, we know this in, that, in experience. We know this in experience. That's what we're looking for. That's what the Lord's looking for. But secondly... Our music is to be directed towards him. Our music is to be directed towards him. Notice in 1 Chronicles 25 and 6-7, that these trained and skilled musicians, that their music was for the Lord. It was for the Lord. That's who the praise of the worship and what they were playing was going towards. In Psalm 96, the psalmist writes this, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds amongst all the people, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Consider a New Testament passage in Colossians 4.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, Songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. It's an Old Testament, and New Testament theme that our praises and our worship are directed towards him. So what we learn here is that our music that we sing in church is not so that we can fill time. You know, how do we make the service go a little bit longer? Because, you know, my sermon is 25 minutes and Well, you'll be lucky if it's 25 minutes, but 25 minutes and we want to, you know, fill 35. So we'll do long announcements and long music so we get at least an hour out of it. That's not what we do it for. We sing because we love the Lord and we want to give him the praises that are due. We don't sing to help those who come in late feel less awkward. Let's put worship at the beginning so that nobody can notice when people are coming in like 5, 10, 15 minutes late and no one notices. That's not why we do it. We do it so that people or that the Lord gets the praise that he's due. We give thanks and praise to the one who loves us, who has blessed us richly with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I love Revelation four and five when we studied it this summer, or actually in January, I guess more in the winter. Remember the worship scene in heaven in chapter four and chapter five? Everything in creation Every living thing in creation is worshiping God. That's the opening throne room scene in Revelation. They're worshiping him for two attributes of himself. One, that he's the creator, the creator and giver of life. And two, they're worshiping because he's the redeemer. He says, you've purchased men from every tribe and nation with your blood. Worshiping God for creating life, giving life, and worshiping for saving life and redeeming life. You know, music that's directed to the Lord is a powerful means of setting the table to hear from him and experience his presence. So we are not gonna have a dialogue this morning. We are gonna take the appropriate time to put this into practice. And I've asked Katie to come up and lead us in three more worship songs. Now, I pray that your heart has completely changed in the way you approach music or confirmed in the way you approach, approach music. But we're not gonna ask the Lord to come. We're gonna ask him to come. We're gonna ask him to for his Holy Spirit to be with us. And we're gonna ask him to speak to us right now. Maybe we need to hear words of encouragement or words of conviction or you know, confirming things in our lives or changing things in our lives. But we're going to do that now. And so may your hearts be directed to the, to the Lord. So let me just pray. Father in heaven, uh, your word speaks to us 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 4,000 years later, from whenever these passages are written. This is about a 3,000-year-old story, Lord, but your truth remains true. We invite you now, Lord, and your Holy Spirit to come upon us. Would you surprise us, Lord, with an anointing of your Holy Spirit? Would you, Lord, speak to us? Would you, um, you know, just speak to our hearts and our minds and give us clarity as to what you want us to do and how you want us to think, Lord? We invite you here and we ask you to, again, surprise us, Lord. Be part of this worship time and may our hearts be changed in Jesus' name.